I said at the early service that there are times when after the choir has either preached to you or prayed for you, which is what they just did, you think, I think I could go home now. So thank you. We are in um, Galatians chapter 5, and we are concluding this series in the fruit of the Spirit. So if you would, turn with me to Galatians 5, and I want to read this whole passage, and it's really the whole passage that is going to occupy uh, our attention this morning, with uh, some attention particularly to the last of these fruit of the Spirit, self-control. So Galatians 5 beginning at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you. As I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Gracious Spirit, we would ask you to be with us in a very special way at this time, opening our eyes and stopping our ears, inclining our sometimes stubborn hearts to see, to hear, to receive. Wonderful things from this portion of your word. Grant this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you uh, remember, I'm sure, the film Father of the Bride. There is a scene in that film in which George Banks, Steve Martin's character, gets into a, a rather nasty and noisy confrontation with a grocery store clerk. What leads to this confrontation is the fact that his daughter is soon to be married and he's all in a swivet about the cost of it. And that leads to this confrontation in which George Banks berates the clerk, ranting over the fact that the bun company 
and the hot dog company have conspired together to defraud the customer. The bun company puts 10 buns in its package, but the hot dog company only puts eight hot dogs in its package. So in order to fill the 10 hot dog buns, you've got to buy more hot dogs, which means then you've got to buy more buns for the extra hot dogs. And on and on and on. And this confrontation lands Mr. Banks in the local slammer. Nina Banks, George's wife, Diane Keaton, has to come and bail him out. And Nina wants assurances that this will not happen again, that George will cooperate. Embarrassed, humiliated, George, not to defend himself, but simply being descriptive, says in his short apology, I come from a long line of overreactors. I can relate to George Banks. I too come from a long line of overreactors. Just ask my wife. We're thinking this morning about the last of these fruits of the Spirit, self-control, the ability to, to keep oneself in check, to keep oneself under control. Poor George Banks is a humorous picture, a humorous depiction of someone who is out of control. I recall Joe Novenson, PCA pastor and, and acquaintance, saying one time, I've learned that I have to be a steward of myself and not a victim of myself. So I guess the question is, is it possible? Is it possible for the George Banks in each of us to be kept under control? Is it possible for us to steward ourselves in such a way that we no longer are victims of ourselves, victimizing others around us, but actually exhibit a measure of self-control so that the works of the flesh that are enumerated for us in verses 9 to 21 are kept at bay, 19 to 21, are kept at bay. Is it possible? Well, the Bible would say yes. The answer is yes. But I think the Bible would also say that it takes having some clarity about things. And the first of them, the first that you have to have clarity about is that this is the most important battle in which you are engaged, this war within. We've been hearing for years, decades now, about the culture wars, the war out there, the battle raging in the world around us between competing visions of how life is to be lived. Folks, the far more serious war is the war within. It's the war that the apostle describes in verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then he lists those works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21. And then in verse the end of verse 21, he offers a warning, and it's a sober warning, that those who practice...
practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he lists the fruit of the Spirit. And if you think about it for just a moment, you, you can tell that these respective works and fruits are in opposition to each other. They're against each other. They're antagonists. They are at war, the spirit and the flesh against each other in you and in me. It's this warfare that elicits from the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, the cry, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I wonder if you feel that this morning. Some of you do. I know you do. Some of you maybe not so much. But I guess what I want to ask is, do you take it seriously? Do you take seriously this internal conflict? Now, what's going on here? Let's ask that question. What is the nature of this conflict? There are those who understand the Bible to teach that as a Christian, you have a good side and a bad side. You have an old nature and a new nature. You have a friendly angel on your left shoulder, all white and shiny. And on your right shoulder, you have this red, bad, malevolent angel. And you're stuck between these two voices who seem to have equal power. The good angel, the bad angel, the flesh, the spirit. Sometimes you listen to one, sometimes you listen to the other. Two natures, two essential centers I want you to hear this, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian today, a believer or a non-believer, you don't have two of those. You only have one. If you're a non-Christian today, a non-believing person, and you're tired, tired of you being you, Tired like Bob Dylan, who said, I've been trying to get as far away from myself as I can. I have good news for you. That old nature that makes you so tired can give way to a new nature. The old can give way to the new. Not an additional nature, but a new nature. A new heart, a new life, a new start, real change. And if you're a Christian today, I want you to be encouraged because the new has come. How do I know that? I know it because of what Paul says in this passage in verse 24. Did you catch it? Verse 24, listen to this. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Crucified it. Killed it. Put it to death. And what is the flesh? Well, the flesh in part involves the physical, material aspect of our humanity, that part that struggles to exist. But it's deeper than just the physical thing. It is the complex of passions and motivations and desires and commitments and thoughts and intentions of the mind and the heart that stand opposed to God and stand opposed to his purposes and desires for your life. 
And his purpose and desire for your life is life and not death. And Paul is telling us that that flesh, that old corrupted nature, so disordered by sin, which we've inherited from Adam, our first father, Paul says that has been crucified. It's been put to death. And then in verse 25 he says, since, and that's the better translation, since you live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. And what he has in view here is a resurrection. You see, if you're a Christian, the flesh, its power, its life force, its controlling, demanding, death-inducing qualities have been crucified. There's been a crucifixion, a death. There's been a cross. The flesh has been impaled on it. And there has been a resurrection. Something that was dead has been brought back to life by the Spirit of God. Two pictures here, two metaphors to describe what has happened to you if you are a Christian and what can happen to you if you're not a Christian. A death and a resurrection. The very things that happened to Jesus first. A death, a crucifixion, a cross upon which the power of sin was shattered. The prison of the flesh crushed. And there has been a resurrection to newness of life. Bondage gives way to freedom. Death is replaced with life. And this isn't the only place the apostle says this kind of thing. Please read Colossians chapter 3 this afternoon. You will hear Paul say in verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, the old man with its practices, and you have put on the new self, the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The old is put off. The new has been put on. Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, has made us alive together with Jesus Christ. Even when we were dead, in our trespasses and our sins. You've been made alive. You can be made alive by Jesus Christ through his power, his death, his resurrection. In Christ, the old self, the self we inherited from Adam, our identification with Adam, our union with Adam in his rebellion, his sin, his fall, his death, that has been put off. And the new self, our union with Jesus Christ, in his obedience, his righteousness, his resurrection and life, this has been put on. Death and resurrection. That's why Paul can say, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, new creation the old has passed away, and the new has come. If you're a Christian today, 
You've been joined to the new creation. And that new creation in you is being renewed day by day by day by day. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4 that though the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed. And that's where the warfare is, friends. The battle is the battle to rid ourselves of the residue of the old man, the old self, the thing that has been crucified. The struggle is to put on what is new. But the residue is there. The residue is in you. I've said to you that the image of a good angel and a bad angel on the shoulders, the idea of two essences within us, two equally powerful and competing natures, is a bad image for trying to understand who and what we are. There's a better one. And it is Lazarus. You remember the story of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. It's in John chapter 11. Remember that Lazarus was sick, and when Jesus learned that he was sick, he stayed two more days where he was. Why? Why did he do that? He did that because he wanted to display his glory. He wanted to show his power to be more powerful than death. And so he stayed where he was to make sure that Lazarus was definitely, certifiably, beyond doubt, dead. And you'll remember that when Jesus came to the tomb, he ordered that the stone be rolled away. And you'll remember that Martha, the ever practical one, said to Jesus, Lord, are you sure that's a good idea? It's hot here. Things decay quickly. Maybe that would work in Alaska But this is the Mediterranean basin. This is the Middle East. Four days, Lord, there will be an odor. Or as the old King James had it, he stinketh. And Jesus said to Martha, did I not tell you? That if you believed, you would see the glory of God. And Jesus prayed, and he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came out. With his whole body, his head included, his face included, his whole body wrapped in burial cloths, alive, but still wrapped in the garments of death and the grave. Alive, but still carrying with him the residue of the tomb with the odor of death permeating the grave cloths. Now listen, that miracle, if you are a Christian today, that miracle has been replicated in you. You have been made alive, raised to new life. You've come forth from a tomb. You're not a believer, you're still dead. You can be alive, 
but you're still dead. If you're a Christian, you have been made alive. But listen to this. The residue is still there. And it isn't pretty. And it doesn't smell good. And you don't want to touch it. Do you remember the last detail of that story? The last detail of that story is here's poor Lazarus wrapped up in these stinking grave cloths. And Jesus has to instruct the crowd to unbind him. Take the grave clothes off the poor man. That's us, friends. That's us. Alive. But still bearing the residue, carrying with us the foul, stinking, death-permeated grave clothes. And the whole of the Christian life is getting unbound. But until we are finally unbound, the stink is still there. And it's foolish to deny it. It's foolish to pretend otherwise. It's foolish to think that a seersucker suit and some white bucks and a fancy blue bow tie can cover it over. Because it can't. The residue is still there. My wife made this observation years ago. She said, we all limp. That's pretty obvious. We all limp. But then she went on to say this, and this is brilliant. The problem is that we tend to find people who limp the way we do and our limping becomes normal. It becomes the standard. It becomes the litmus test. And we condescend to and pass judgment on those who limp differently. A gomer pile comes along. Young people YouTube this. A gomer pile comes along. He tries to get in step. He tries to keep up. He has a Sergeant Carter screaming all the time that he's out of step. And he knows it. But we become Sergeant Carter. We may do it politely in our seersucker suit with a smile on our face. We may do it impolitely by punching go on the keyboard to send that email that should not be sent. But we hammer those who limp differently, forgetting what we must look like to those whose limp is different from ours. And especially what we must look like to the one who doesn't limp at all and who persists in loving us and pursuing us while we limp. And do you know what this produces, this this blindness to, this insensitivity to our own limp. It produces these nasty works of the flesh. There's the impolite stuff. Isn't it fascinating that all the impolite stuff is sort of a parenthesis within which the more polite sins are parenthesized? All the sexual immorality stuff on the front end and the back end but right there in the middle, 
all of that other stuff, these works of the flesh like envy and divisions and dissensions. That's what emerges from this blindness to, this insensitivity to our own link. And folks, there, there, there isn't anything, there is no rule, there's no regulation, there's no policy that can touch these things. Paul says that in verse 18. The law can't touch this stuff. Only the Spirit can excise these things, cut out these things, continue to put to death these things. Don't you think it's interesting that the Spirit is mentioned seven times in these 11 verses? My friends, the point here is that you can never ever give evidence of this particular fruit of the Spirit, self-control, until and unless you see, truly see, truly acknowledge specifically where your life is out of control, where George Banks emerges from your heart. And beyond seeing and acknowledging, grieving, it is Jesus who said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What do you think he's talking about in Matthew 5? He's talking about this. He's talking about one of the realities of the Christian life that those who are citizens of his kingdom struggle against and continue to grieve over the residue that they carry around with them. So do you believe? Do you really believe? Believe to the point of mourning and grieving that you are poor, that you are destitute, that this residue is still there. Forgive me while I turn back to the opening hymn, the hymn in which we sang. He, the mighty God, indwells us, his to strengthen, help, empower, his to overcome the tempter, ours to call in, in, in dangerous hour. In his strength we dare to battle all the raging hosts of sin, and by him alone we conquer foes without and foes within. We believe this. Do you believe that you are alive on the one hand, raised from death to life, united to Jesus, the new creation, but on the other hand, the stench of death still clings to you like those burial rags that Lazarus needed to be rid of. Now listen, if you're sitting there snugly in your pew thinking, saying to yourself, I sure hope so-and-so is listening to this. You've missed the point. It's about me. It's about you. It's about the residue that is still there. And it isn't enough week by week, as much as I love this general confession that we played together, it isn't enough week by week to pray a prayer of confession, confessing in a general way that you are a sinner. True confession gets specific. 
True confession is serious and urgent. And true confession leads to a cry for help. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what is your help? What is your only help in the midst of this warfare? The Spirit. The Spirit of God. Folks, self-control is not the fruit of self-discipline or of practice. It's not the fruit of getting the right information into your brain or into somebody else's. It's not the fruit of an accountability group. It's not the fruit of a pleasing temperament or a kind disposition. It is a fruit of the spirit, spirit conceived, spirit born. It is only the spirit who can slay the lack of control and replace it with self-control along with all of the other fruit of the spirit. Folks, the Bible tells you this morning that if you are a Christian, truly a Christian, you have been raised from death to life by the power of the Spirit and that you are now being led by the Spirit, taken in hand by the Spirit. He says that in verse 18, Paul does. And where is the Spirit leading you? In the direction of life. And what does life look like? Life looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That is what life looks like. That is where he is leading you. That is why Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. And how do you do that? You do it by taking desperately, seriously, the residue that is there that cannot be pasted over by niceness and politeness. To walk in the spirit then is having acknowledged your desperate need means equally desperately to call upon the spirit to continue to change you to cleanse you of the stink, to heal you of the limp, to continue to renew you after the likeness of Jesus Christ, your creator and redeemer, delivering you from jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy, delivering you from the failure to seek unity rather than contributing to disunity from belittling your brother or sister, speaking ill of one whom, with whom you will spend eternity. This is what it is to walk in the Spirit. I learned this from Francis Schaeffer nearly 50 years ago. I'm not a good practitioner, but the longer I'm in this business, the more convinced I am that it is absolutely true. You live the Christian life the way you began the Christian life looking to Jesus by the power of the Spirit to do in you and for you what you are powerless to do for yourself. It is living moment by moment by moment in humble reliance upon Jesus and his enabling power given to you in the person of the Holy Spirit.
That's what it is to walk in the Spirit. But as we do that, you and I, taking desperately seriously the residue we carry with us and in equal desperation looking to Jesus by the power of the Spirit to enable us to be what we are powerless to be, as we do that, more and more the fruit of the Spirit will be seen. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These things will be born, they will be seen, and the world will notice. God help us. God have mercy upon us. And God help us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that this gospel is not a theoretical thing. It is not a thing intended to stick in our heads. It is a thing intended to be taken deep into our souls by your spirit. And would you do that? Would you do it in me? Would you do it in us? Would you, by word and spirit, continue this work of transformation, renewing us day by day after the image of Jesus, our Savior, we pray in his name. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing together.